This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Zoe, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. You are a deep tech investor. Tell us what deep tech is. Deep tech tends to mean a lot of different things to different people. <laughs> it's actually probably one of the most unhelpful terms yeah. out there. At a very high level, it's smart stuff. But what that actually means in terms of the detail is it's a type of technology that often has years of research that's gone into the making. You could be talking easily sort of seven to ten years in the lab, in a university environment, which is where deep tech tends to come from because you have those significant research budgets that go into creating something that has a real step change in benefit to the end customer. This real paradigm shift in approach that gives this extreme benefit in comparison to other digitization technologies. Essentially it has a layer or many layers of science behind it. Indeed, indeed. And that often goes into the strong intellectual property base, which gives these companies that clear water to go from research into commercialization. Two of the great examples of it are artificial intelligence and robotics, right? They are. What are your thoughts on those in terms of where will these create jobs? Because actually, when people talk about AI and and robots, quite often there's there's a sort of doomsday scenario of them taking lots of jobs. Yes, absolutely. So I think that goes into many different levels in that, as I mentioned, most deep tech comes from university environments. And in 2020, 2021, there were 56,000 new jobs that were created from university spin-outs. So really, rather than taking away roles, you're focusing on those that are going to have a sustainability going forward because there are these high-tech jobs that are very much focused on what are the needs of the future rather than what's there at present. So can you give us an example of some of those 56,000 jobs? Yes, absolutely. So, for example, uh, we've got the likes of uh, Living Optics, which is a spin-out company from the University of Oxford. Now, they have created a miniaturised hyperspectral camera. If you think about your current camera, it's focused on red, blue and green. They focus on capturing data from across the broader spectrum so that you are putting into your image a much higher level of data for things like computer vision. To to give you a realistic example of how that can become is they've got a great, great image of taking a picture of a packet of pills and just from that picture being able to identify which ones are counterfeit and which ones are not. So that's the type of companies that that we're talking about. And talk to us a bit about university spin-outs, because that can be a phrase that isn't perhaps used as much in in the UK. What do you mean by university spin-out? Yeah, so we're talking about companies that have originated from university research. So you will have these blue skies research budgets and throughout the research process there will be this nugget of commercial potential that is identified that goes through a a patenting and an IP process 
and then that is licensed to a university spin-out company, something that is commercialising that IP into a business plan and taking it out of university environments. How is it improving in terms of the relationship between academia and private enterprise? Because traditionally in the UK, it's been a bit more siloed. Yes, it has. I think it's improving on various levels, which is everything from postgrads, early career researchers, seeing that entrepreneurship is a viable career opportunity, Mm -hmm. rather than thinking that they need to stay within the strict realms of academia, through to greater workings between the public university environments and especially venture capitalists, and understanding what are the motivations of researchers, universities, technology transfer offices, and how can they align better with those of the private venture capital community. So we're seeing many more, I'm going to say, partnerships rather than silos in trying to actually effectively get this technology from the university into the commercial environment. There is a lot more kind of focus on enterprise and entrepreneurship. You know, there are societies that exist on it in most of the campuses that I kind of visit. Even at Oxford and Cambridge, you know, there are pure venture capital societies as well, which is kind of pretty <laughs> extraordinary to, to see. What do you think is kind of leading to that sort of um, improvement in kind of business understanding on campus? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was at Oxford, there was a study done that I think a quarter of all students were thinking of, you know, setting up their own venture as being a viable career route, which is phenomenal, really. I think it's been driven by a series of different things, both on the push and the pull side. A recognition that if we're looking towards long-term growth, the sort of UK PLC, we need to look at these high-tech industries. Where is that innovation coming from? It's coming from university environments. Hence, how can we better support not only financing mechanisms, but also it's quite a mindset change to go from either student or early career researcher into like an entrepreneurial role. Mm. You don't necessarily have the appetite for risk in that often sitting in a research group it's quite a risk-adverse environment rather than saying, I'm just going to get something out there and trial it. The the networks that you need are are very different from your research grant funding mechanisms into sort of commercial early adopters. So hence why there's a greater amount of support that's focusing on various things from mindset change to commercial interaction through to financing as well because you studied volcanology i did so what's volcanology (laughs) um not a viable career route in the uk as i found out after doing this but uh, it's a study of volcanoes and uh, impact on the natural environment so sounds so cool I mean, all all done for the field trips, I'm not going (laughs) to lie, and and that was a a true highlight of it. But how did you land on wanting to do that at 18, 19? Yeah, so my my parents were scuba diving instructors, and I think travelling the world and going to the likes of coral atolls, it gave you a real appreciation for the natural environment. And I remember reading an amazing stat that was something like um, how the majority of active volcanoes today weren't known to be active volcanoes before their you know, significant eruption. So just have a feeling of this immense power that's in the natural environment and you know, study as we may, it's always going to exceed our expectations. So your parents were scuba divers. What do you think you learned from that that helped you prepare for your career? That you just have to do it. 
So, yes, my parents are scuba diving instructors, but actually one of the most informative things that my mother did was um, put me on a plane at the age of 14 and tell me to go and stay with some pen pal friends in, the, in Australia, which, you know, as a mother myself, oh, I wouldn't even <laughs> dream of doing that. But, you know, very much taught me that if you want to do something, you just have to do it and, you know, predominantly rely on yourself in order to, to enact it. And I think at 14, that gave me the confidence that um, why not just why not have a go and I think that was probably one of the most informative things although I would say not repeating with my 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 kids themselves and post doing that or as you were sort of in your third year and thinking about your career how did you decide what to do next because there is a danger with university degrees that they go too narrow too early for some people which you know the study of volcanoes could arguably fall into that category how did you decide what to do next and and what opportunities did it lead to so my my next role was at kpmg as a management consultant and i always knew that management consulting was not my long-term future <laughs> um, but what it did is give you a solid grounding in company finances and I thought if I got that aspect, I could pair that with my love of science and then go on to something that you know, much better fits my, my character set going onwards. But coming straight out of university, I didn't have much commercial now financial understanding. So that really acted as the next step to allow me to get it. Were you asked about volcanology during your management uh, consultancy interview? I think I was asked, where shouldn't you live in the world? <laughs> and um, that, that probably formed the majority of the, the interview questions. Back to kind of sectors of the, of the future rather than volcanoes. <laughs> um, what's the, what sectors most kind of excite you in terms of if you were 23 in 2023, where do you think you'd be thinking about starting your career now? So, say so I focus on like university research environments, and the one thing that is amazing about the UK is the quality of our research base. So, it's approximately 84% of research that comes out of UK universities is internationally significant or world leading, meaning that we have long term growth prospects in those areas particularly around semiconductors, photonics, robotics, and life sciences as well. So really focusing on those sort of homegrown areas where you look 56,000 jobs created just in university spin-outs in one year, that's going to continue to increase. And how would you... One of the most sort of competitive industries as well is, is venture capital. What would yeah. your advice be for people, youngsters, that you know, I was talking about there being venture capital societies on campus and so on now. What would your advice be to somebody wanting to break into venture capital? So venture capital is quite a hard role to go into without any commercial experience. Because essentially what you're doing is you're assessing the underlying technology, yes, is it something that can transition, in my case, from the lab into the field? And that you could do if you are predominantly of a scientific mindset, saying we've got this lab-based evidence set, can we see a viable route for it working you know, out in the wild? But what is more difficult to do if you don't have commercial experiences saying, what is the appropriate business plan? How can we see early adoption looking? What could those first routes to market? And then what's the scaling on from that? So I started sort of my early VC career in a technology transfer environment. 
which is working within the university ecosystem, commercialising university IP. And that was a really nice stepping stone because you weren't expected to validate the entirety of, you know, from lab into field commercial adoption onwards. You could take a portion of that, gain significant experience and then move on to sort of broader fields on from that. So um, it's almost building up that holistic skill set from the scientific to the commercial, you know, to broader market before you necessarily step into VC. Although there are analyst roles out there that will usually be focused on deal sourcing, relationships with incubators, accelerators, and that can also be a really good place to start. When it comes to uh, investment in female entrepreneurs, you know, the venture capital stats are uh, very commonly trotted out, sort of, you know, only 2% of funding going to female entrepreneurs. How do you think we can tackle that going forward? Yeah, so in, in deep tech, there's a series of different things that need to be done in that, as I mentioned, we generally focus on early career academics that have this research base that's going to create this novel technology. And the figures for female academics or postdocs in deep tech fields are low themselves. Mm. So we need to have more appropriate support system that's going to allow anybody who has that will in order to um, start their, their venture, especially as we're coming from a relatively scarce base. So that base needs to be addressed at a university mm. level. But then... I think as as a woman that you, you have a slightly different risk appetite, particularly with regards to financing, but then also the execution risk as well. So are you going to be able to have a stable financing route for the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah. And then do you have the appropriate networks that are going to allow you to take your technology out into the commercial environment and be successful? So the more programs that can be created that give both appropriate financing and access to the end customers, the better. Yeah. I just wanted to take a quick break to thank you all, the listeners, for making this show possible. Remarkably, we're now closing in on almost 100 episodes. If you'd like me to come in and speak to your company about all the lessons that we've learned across all the episodes that we've recorded, some of the different places that I've gone in to speak vary as much from the National Farmers Union right through to Microsoft. So please do drop us a line if you think you'd be interested in having a chat at partnerships at jobsofthefuture.co. This show is made possible by the support of our various partners. Today, I want to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially-minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that the people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. If you're interested in exploring partnerships and reaching 40,000 subscribers a month, please get in touch via partnerships at jobsinthefuture.co. And how many people are in the Octopus Ventures, well, Octopus Ventures as a whole, and then how many sort of looking at deep tech? Yeah, so we have a 10 in the deep tech team, and Octopus Ventures as a whole is around about 100 now. And, and so take us through the sort of structure of that team of 10, and, and, and what do they do? And sort of, I guess, 
pull back a bit of the curtain in terms of what yeah, working in VC looks like because it can look like a bit of a um, bit of a black box to people at points. Absolutely. So starting bottom up, you will often have the analysts who, within deep tech, you're looking for people who have recently come out of the lab, have a variety of scientific knowledge. In our team, we've got everything from um, chemists to material scientists to photovoltaic engineers. And what's one of those? Looking at uh, what's the best, one of the best uses of applications of photovoltaics in the likes of solar panels, for example, who can really get to grips with the underlying technology, saying, is this innovative? Going and reading the scientific papers, saying, do we think that this is a particularly compelling step change in technology? And then on from the analysts, you'll often have the investment associates who will start adding the business case around that. So do we see this as a scalable product, for example? Can we see the path through technology validation into early productization? And is it something that can be rolled out en masse? And then the next level up is often the investment managers who are expected to then put that into a full commercial case for investment. So looking at, um, is this truly a venture-backable company in terms of its ongoing growth prospects? What are potential returns that we could expect? What does that life cycle need to look like? And then often the, the principals or the partners are there much more on the strategic angle of what does our entirety of our investment portfolio need to look like to give appropriate diversification what are new opportunities in the market? What new funds do we need to be launching? And how do you keep disciplined in terms of what you're looking at? Because there's a huge amount there of topics and you know, things that require really deep understanding, obviously, of, of deep tech. But how, how do you sort of work out which scientific papers to prioritise, to read and so on? You know, what's the kind of like decision-making structures around those and frameworks? Yeah, so this really depends on what stage of investment you're doing. Yeah. If you're going for Series A onwards, which is often around about the third funding round of a company, um, you have a view on productization. As such, you can look at market needs and then backsource accordingly. That's slightly easier to do in a B2B software company, whereas deep tech are often creating the new markets as well. Yeah. But you can still take to an extent, a market-driven approach. But um, if you're going earlier, then you can't do that in that these are still enabling technologies that are still finding their first route to market. As I said, it initially comes from this blue skies research, this nugget of commercial potential, and then they're finding the market. And who realises that first commercial potential in terms of the scientific journey because that's not necessarily scientists background obviously to kind of spot those kind of commercial opportunities so where does that moment happen so i think this is one of the real challenges of deep tech and deep tech commercialization in that if we look across europe around about 85 percent of deep tech founders are first time founders yeah so it's not the case that you necessarily have people who have created their company but then gone back into like academia and doing it again or whether they go fully back into academia or not, still around that university environment. So we work with a lot of first-time founders, early career academics 
who are working with the likes of their technology transfer office, who help bridge that gap between this is the research, this is the you know potential commercial application, what does the first business plan need to look like? When I was at Stanford and I was doing the exec course there into entrepreneurship, so half of the course was made up of people studying at Stanford already and they were almost entirely scientists. It was really sort of striking that they were all doing that because they were all kind of working on deep level research anyway but were kind of sharpening their commercial skills and I just thought that I wasn't aware of so much happening there. I mean you've done quite a lot as well in terms of uh, you did an MBA at the University of Birmingham and you um, also studied at Oxford Said Business School as well so you're engrossed in kind of campus culture uh, when it comes to business and so on what what changes have you noticed over the last 15 years with regards to a drive for entrepreneurship yeah i think for early career researchers it's becoming more of a viable career and a viable career that they can see being something tangible in that historically when you looked at university spin-outs in particular you would say the target of these companies was something like a component sellout. So talking three to four years' time at about a valuation uplift of sort of you know, about five times what the initial investment was. And that was seen as being great. But now there's this real ambition as we get more case studies, such as the likes of Oxford Nanopore, for example, mm-hmm. that we can build global companies from a university ecosystem in the UK and targeting the sale out at Series B, sort of fourth funding round, it doesn't have to be our, our limit. And I would say almost that mindset change, the wanting to build something big, has been one of the most obvious differences, not just then the support structure that all comes around that with some of the societies that you mentioned earlier. Because people can see it as well, right, those case studies being so important. And yeah, they've yeah, also seen what's happened with the... COVID, va- COVID vaccine as well, which has made a big kind of difference in terms of people being able to see it. And it does feel as though science, deep technology may have a sort of golden moment in the wake of that in terms of people being really aspirational to do it because they can kind of see the impact of it now at such a kind of human level. What You named Oxford Nanopore there. What other companies are, are out there that are exciting that people may or may not have heard of? CMR, the ro- robotic surgeon, is a really exciting yeah. one out of uh, Cambridge. Graphcore, which has, you know, has had Cambridge links as well and a little bit biased because that's where I'm based. But then also down on the south, in terms of the origination. Yeah, Nigel Teen came on the podcast a couple of years ago now, actually. Like, yeah, yeah. probably the most exciting company that people haven't heard of. Well, that's, that's a really nice thing. We, we now don't have just the one that we put on the, the mm. podium. And in terms of you saying it's the golden moment, I actually don't necessarily think that's the case. It's just the highlighting of the start of the journey. Yeah. In that if you look at where, you know, in my opinion, we should be prioritising resources, you know, significantly long term this is very much the start of the uphill curve in terms of what's possible even looking at the number of patents and it's quite difficult to then say how that should translate into the number of spin-outs because you might have more than one patent that goes into a company or it might may be more applicable for licensing rather than the creation of its own company 
but we are nowhere near potential in terms of what we should be generating. And for me, that's one of the most exciting parts of my job. And what would be the one thing you could change to make that happen? I would say there needs to be more appropriate financing systems to better support early stage deep tech companies in that when I started in similar roles sort of 10 years ago to now, it's still pretty difficult to raise a meaningful pre-seed round. And by that, I mean a round that's going to give you at least 24 months of runway so that you can hit your various value inflection points and then go and raise a a meaningful seed round at a targeting three times valuation uplift. What's the amount for that sort of meaningful pre-seed? What gives the sort of average deep tech startup that 24 month runway would you say so that can vary significantly according to how much hardware is in there how much software is in there for a pure software company you might see rounds of around about 500k for a hardware company it will often be more like two to three Mm. but then supplemented by grant funding as well yeah but we often see that these companies can raise i'm going to say sort of eight months to 12 months of funding which it can then take a good six months to get your next round in order yeah. together. So still, I think we need more lead investors who are happy to write chunky checks at this stage and then really underwrite that technology validation pathway and bring others in on the ride too. You touched a bit on robotics there. Mm. What do you think the jobs of the future will be when it comes to robotics? I think the joy of deep tech is that you actually don't really know. Um, in the, the absolute pleasure of my job is looking at new innovation that is just coming out of universities. And like every day you're looking at these things and going, wow, I, I didn't think that was possible. We are certainly going to see greater automation of a wide variety of roles and with things like you know touch labs for example up in edinburgh who are doing these robotic skins allowing greater sense of touch pressure you know that expands the potential use cases of robotics on from what we have often seen as being these um low skilled i'm going to say or sort of you know automation that isn't particularly precision led although you know we did use the example of cmr which is you know very precision so we're going to see a greater expansion but say that the joy of deep tech is you just don't know what's coming and what what other you touched on cambridge quite a bit there but also you mentioned edinburgh as well what Mm -hmm. other universities and exciting parts of the country are there out there that people might not be aware of now this depends on what technology area you're interested in so for example we are blessed with you know strong photonics innovation in the uk and you would look to the likes of the future photonics hub that is based in southampton and sheffield we've got a portfolio company called flux that's just spun out of the university of sheffield and that does infrared sensing for LIDAR. Mm. LIDAR being light detection and ranging, it's used to as one of the mechanisms for uh, determining distance, everything from environmental sensing through to ultimately autonomous vehicles. And uh, that has come out of the University of Sheffield, led by Ben White, and you know, for me, one of the most exciting companies in the portfolio. Amazing. So depending on what 
research area you're interested in, whereas great for robotics. It's it's very varied. And let's take chat GPT as an example of AI in a future industry, right? Yeah. Because there are these moments that happen where people sort of, you know, like almost like a thunderclap across the internet. People get then what could happen or they see it very real, right? It's been talked about for years and years and then something like that gets released. What do you think the impact of it on work and business will be? One thing I have to say first is I just love the variety of news articles that are coming out about ChatGBT. So this large language model by OpenAI that I think was first released in November Mm. last year. But last week we had everything from it a threatening national security to there's a great article in The Guardian about how it being used to to, um, identify crochet um, patterns for animals and the the challenges of that. So you've got to admire the diversity (laughs) there. But uh, is it going to have an immediate impact on jobs? Probably not. Are we looking at better ways to then utilise human resource in the long term that can be complemented by technology? Definitely. And I think that is the real interesting interaction between, you you spoke about robotics or chat uh, GBT as well. You're seeing where are the true strengths of human intuition, flexibility, and then how can that be complemented by automate automation, freeing human resource up to go and explore something different. Yeah. And for me, that's super exciting. Where do you think it could have the most impact? Or where do you think it will have the most impact? In terms of jobs or Yeah, jobs more... but also just general creativity. I think that's it. It's like, what does that take off the human, not mindset is the wrong word, but how does that allow humans to make most use of their creativity skill set? Because what's really difficult to replicate is human intuition, human flexibility, the drive for discovery, and what could then be supplemented, taken off the palate, further in terms of thinking that that intuition can then sit on top so difficult to put an exact this is where I think it's going to go but that's certainly some of the most compelling benefits and prior to that you spent uh well prior to working on just ventures you spent a bit of time in in crypto which is one of the other sort of industries that gets cited over the future i know you didn't spend a long time in it but Mm. you did build and and sell a product within the crypto world can you explain what it was to us yes absolutely so this is one of the career moves that i never thought would happen i had just had my first child i was doing an mba um and uh, personally i don't take being out of work particularly well as my husband will attest to because the the house gets furiously cleaned um so I think he was desperate that I did something more productive with my time and as such we built together a cryptocurrency exchange a market maker um that uh, actually was uh, amazingly successful in that we sold it as a technology sale a year later and although it's not my particular love being in the crypto industry what it taught you is it gave you well for me it gave me that experience of being an entrepreneur Mm. and made the advice that you give back to founders just that more real I, i don't think it was particularly different but when you're telling people where to focus your time on and you've lived it saying my god i've got like 20 different things I need to be doing today what do I prioritize it's that that lands as much more real heartfelt 
advice you're giving back. And what do you think of the future of crypto? It's obviously been through some ups and downs lately, to, <laughs> to put it mildly. But what did you see as the opportunity originally with that? And where do you think the future of it is going? Yeah, so, I mean, the opportunity of that for me was just very much personal development. Was it a, I'm building a product that is going to you know, have significant impact on humankind going forward? No, it wasn't. Do I think it is going to be around long term? Yes, I very much do. We're going to see a series of different um, cyclical natures, particularly as regulation starts to keep up, which in comparison to other industries is relatively light on a number of fields. And I think that is still very much chasing behind the technological development that we're seeing at the moment and even social adoption to a large extent. So it will be interesting to see where that goes in the the near to long term future. And what's your advice to people starting out on their careers and, and thinking of things that almost sounds like it started as a kind of side hustle? What's your advice for people thinking of, of that and, and how to go about it and why they should do it? Because you never know what you're going to get out of it. Like for me, it was very much, uh, oh, let me try my hand at this. I've got some of the underlying technical skills. Let's see where it goes. There was no big long-term plan to it. But, you know, as a result, we got a technology sale out in, in 12 months. So don't, don't shy away because you can't necessarily be the, see the big picture going forward. Even when I have CEOs come to me today saying we've got a three-year plan, it will never end out the way yeah. that they've actually presented it to you. So absolutely have a go, but surround yourself with people who, yes, are knowledgeable in the industry and going to feed back into the development, but are also going to tell you to, to have a go. There are going to be enough naysayers as you go along the, the various career paths. Let's inject some of that positivity early on that are going to help you to break down the barriers rather than you know, build them up in your mind. And if we were to interview, yeah, if you were to pass the mic to some fellow entrepreneurs, who do you think we should go and have a chat with next? Spoil for choice in that case. <laughs> um, I think uh, Sasha from uh, Unitary AI in Cambridge is yep. really interesting. Looking at sort of the automatic monitoring discovery of harmful content in video. Got to love Richard Murray from Orca Computing, yeah. um, photonics-based quantum computing company. I think the, the potentials of quantum hardware are still amazing to discover in that they're still in the, the research but finding early traction, use cases, and understanding of how that can break down the uh, current barriers to uh, computational ability. Sleep spot for choice. Just explain to us what quantum computing is, because you're right, it could be a huge sort of breakout area. What is quantum computing? So quantum computing is, you currently have in standard computing, bits, your, your, your bits that you focus on. Quantum computing is focused on qubits and the ability for your ones and zeros to exist uh, together rather than it having to be a a binary of one or zero, which therefore means that uh, the ability of quantum computers yet to be founded, but anticipated, that what it could take a standard computer around about 10,000 years to achieve in terms of the output Theoretically, it could be possible in, in just a number of minutes with yeah. quantum computers, but still very much finding specific use cases, what could be a scalable option. But again, in the UK, uh, we, are, we are spoiled for choice. There, there are a range of different hardware methods from uh, photonics to superconducting through to iron traps. 
you know, the, the likes of Oxford Quantum Circuits out of Oxford is one of the you know, more developed in terms of funding rounds and quantum motion as well from our portfolio has just closed their Series B2. It's one of these things, though, where you talk about 10,000 years for a computer being able to complete something. And it's almost very... It can be quite difficult, I think, for people to move their brains into that kind of space and sort of quantify something like that. But actually, I think, you know, and it is, again, to use the example of chat GPT, it's one of these things where people are beginning to see the amount of information that is out there now, if you are able to kind of plug all that together, which these computers could potentially have the ability to kind of do that and like move the patterns and connections. Like, you know, we are talking a real revolutionary moment and we seem to be getting closer all the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's that now brought into something tangible Yeah. that um, on the one hand, it's really exciting. What does this open up in terms of possibilities? On the other, it could be quite frightening. But then trying to look at is the like, regulatory side, sort of, you know, big tech responsibility, uh, keeping up to date with the technological advancement. It's not, not there yet, but seeing yeah. that uh, progress as well is, is something to watch. Brilliant. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been a brilliant insight into deep tech. Really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode, when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok, and of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, Click on the links in the show notes below.